Good morning. How many of you ready for some good news today? Seems like all you hear in the media today is everything's about fake news, right? I don't have any fake news for you, but I got some good news. Shoot. Technology. It's messing up. Luckily, I came prepared. If you have your Bibles with you, we're going to be in two uh, main texts this morning. One is in the Old Testament book of Habakkuk. The other is the New Testament book of Hebrews. So put something there in Hebrews and uh, open first to Habakkuk. I know that may take a little bit for some of you because Habakkuk is not a book that you hear very many sermons preached out of. Last week was the first of what I said was going to be a two-part message And we are looking at three words that everyone will perceive uh, one way or another depending on your understanding of the gospel and the nature of God. Last week we looked at two of those words, judgment and punishment. Without a correct understanding of who God is and what he has done through Jesus, those two words are always going to produce a feeling of dread and fear. But we learn that for those of us who are in Christ, those two things are not anything that we should be afraid of or dread at all. And that's because Jesus took all that we could be found guilty of onto himself. He was judged and he was punished for it on the cross. Everything that we deserve to be judged for, that we deserve to be punished for, Jesus took instead. And so all that we deserved was transferred to him. And then all that he is, all that we don't deserve was transferred to us. This is the great exchange that happens at the moment of salvation. At the end of the message last week, I said that in light of that truth that something has to be addressed. A question needs to be answered. And it's the question that many of us wrestle with when bad things happen to us, which is, if Jesus has taken all of my punishment, then why is this happening to me? Why do horrific things still happen in the world? Because to us, a lot of those things that happen, they sure do look a lot like punishment. And it's hard for our finite, rational minds or the the orphan mindset that we still tend to operate from so many times. Hard for it to really perceive it as anything else. I know that some of you here today probably struggle with that thought or the belief that if something bad is happening to you, it must be because of something that you've done, that you deserve it somehow. One of the points from the message last week was that under the new covenant, God no longer deals with his people through punishment. I've included that again as the first point, if you're following along there in the bulletin, but I'm adding the rest to it. And that is, under the new covenant, God no longer deals with his people through punishment, but through discipline. Now, for some of us, that news isn't really much better. Because discipline to us still carries a lot of negative connotations with it. Um, We think negatively of that just as much as we normally would punishment and dread. 
not only because we have a misunderstanding of the gospel, but also a misunderstanding of what discipline actually means. To many of us, discipline and punishment are pretty much the same thing, but they're not, especially when you see them in light of the gospel. Okay, so the book of Habakkuk, we're in chapter 1 there. Habakkuk was a prophet to Judah. This was a time when the nation of Israel was divided in two. You had Israel to the north and Judah to the south, each with their own king. Habakkuk sees the, just a rampant idolatry and sin that is happening among his people. And so he complains to God, essentially saying, God, how can you allow this to continue? Why don't you do something about this? And so God answers the prophet starting in verse 5. So Habakkuk chapter 1, starting in verse 5, let's all stand together as we read the word of the Lord. God says, look among the nations, observe, be astonished, wonder, because I am doing something in your days. You would not believe it if you were told. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. They are dreaded and feared. Their justice and authority originate with themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards and keener than wolves in the evening. Their horsemen come galloping. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swooping down to devour. All of them come for violence. Their horde of faces moves forward. They collect captives like sand. They mock at kings and rulers are a laughing matter to them. They laugh at every fortress and heap rubble up to capture it. Then they will sweep through like the wind and pass on, but they will be held guilty, they whose strength is their God. Let's pray. God, I'm grateful for the truth that you have for us this morning. God, would you speak to us through your word? Lord, use me to speak, God, just to to reveal your heart to us, to reveal the truth of who we are in you. God, I pray that Whatever your will is for each individual life in here, what your will is for us corporately, God, that it would be accomplished this morning. And it's for your glory I'm asking that. In Jesus' name, amen. So God tells Habakkuk that he is going to do something about Judah's idolatry and rebellion. He's going to send the Chaldeans to discipline them. Now, the Chaldeans were some bad people. Um, I hope you got that from the text. I mean, they were the ISIS of the day back then. As a matter of fact, ISIS would be shaking in their boots about the Chaldeans. That's how bad they were. We're not going to read everything here in the book, but after this, Habakkuk responds back to God. And he essentially goes, whoa, wait a minute. The Chaldeans... I mean, they're even more wicked than we are. Why would you use something more wicked to discipline something less wicked? And in chapter 2, God says, well, that's not all. And in verse 4, he says something really important that's going to apply to us when he said, Behold, as for the proud one, talking about the Chaldeans, his soul is not right with him, but the righteous will live by faith. We're going to come back to that a little bit later in the message and, and see what God meant by that. But he then tells Habakkuk that once Judah has been disciplined, 
then he is going to judge the Chaldeans by bringing down his wrath upon them. And so there's an interesting situation here in the book of Habakkuk. You've got two groups of people, the people of Judah who are God's people and the Chaldeans who are not. And both of them are going to have some really bad things happen to them. Bad things are coming to both. For God's people, though, those things are going to be done for their discipline, to bring about their repentance and their restoration, to make them the people that God envisioned and called them to be. It will be done for their ultimate good, but for the Chaldeans, it's not going to be done for their good. It's simply going to be done for God's glory that he is going to display by pouring out his wrath in judgment. So to one group, it's discipline, and then to the other, it's punishment. Every one of us are going to go through something pretty bad in life. We live in a broken world, and we will be affected by that brokenness until Jesus returns. And nowhere does God ever promise to protect us from that. Nowhere does he guarantee that he is uh, going to spare us the brokenness of this world. What he does promise is that we will encounter it. John 16, Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. Not you might, not I hope you don't, but you're going to. It's just a given fact. And every time we face that trouble, we have to determine if what we are going through is discipline or punishment. And more times than not, we just assume that we're being punished. But we've already established that if you are in Christ, it is not punishment because Jesus has already taken all of that for you. I mentioned this right before we dismissed last Sunday that if God does something to punish us now, then that means that what Jesus did on the cross wasn't enough. It would be to say Jesus' death on the cross wasn't enough to pay for my sin. It did not satisfy the requirement, and so God had to send a sickness on me. The cross wasn't enough, and so God had to make me endure this difficult marriage. The cross wasn't enough, and so God had to take my child. No, the cross was more than enough. It was more than enough, and he is not doing those things to punish you and so if it's not punishment then it has to be discipline but like I said even discipline carries some negative feelings with it because I think most of us view discipline same way we would view punishment and so discipline in our homes pretty much looks like this don't do that don't do that don't do that all right that's it I'm getting the belt That's discipline to us. (laughs) That's usually what we define as discipline, an immediate reaction to disobedience. And that reaction usually comes from anger. But discipline doesn't come from anger. It comes from love. And because that's how we tend to view discipline, that's also how we tend to view God's discipline on us. But that's not discipline at all. That's punishment. We are punishing our kids for their disobedience. Here's how discipline is different. Next thing in your notes. This is the definition of discipline. Discipline is a vision for the future 
that enacts things today. A vision for the future that enacts things today. So Carol and I have a vision for our children. And that vision makes us do things with them today in order to get to tomorrow. We shape, we mold, we chisel, and we bust out the belt when necessary. Why? Because we have a vision for our kids to be responsible, to have integrity, to have character, to love the Lord. And so we do these things. There are things that we do with them that that we hope will lead them to that. Things that we do to teach them to be grateful for all that they have. And some of those things they don't like very much. They don't like to be forced to do chores. They don't like it when we say you're going to have to work in order to earn something that you really want. I mean, it's a whole lot easier to them if we just give them whatever they want, right? But if we just give them whatever they want all the time, then that doesn't teach them to be grateful. It doesn't teach them to be responsible. What they might, might not like at the time is moving them towards something in the future. It's moving them towards that responsibility and gratefulness and a knowledge of God. They may not fully have those things now, but we have a vision that they will one day. And why do we do this? Because we love them. Because our love motivates us to discipline them now. Our love is what motivates us to forego their temporary pleasure and comfort in the moment for something greater for them in the future. Because we know that if they eventually realize those things in the future, it will result in greater amounts of joy in their life. Listen, a bad parent is one who has no vision for their children. Parents with no vision are the ones who coddle and spoil and enable their kids because they're living in the moment, just wanting them to be happy now. Some parents are more concerned with their kids liking them now than they are thinking about what that's going to mean for them in the future, not realizing that they're just setting them up for absolute failure later on down the road. The point of this is not to be a lesson in parenting. The point is for you to know that God has a vision for you. And that vision includes molding you more into your life looking like who you are now in Christ. Because if you're in Christ, then right now you are holy. You are righteous. You are clean. You are secure And every time I say things like that, I know a lot of you are probably thinking, well, I sure don't feel very holy. I know my life, God knows I don't act righteous or clean. No, you may not not act like that now, but God has a vision that you will more and more start looking and living like that. And everything he does is to mold you more and more to look like who you are now in him. Everything he does, everything he allows in your life is ultimately to lead you into pure joy. 
Because joy is what springs up in us. Worship, which is what we were designed to do. God desires worship from those that he created. And so he's going to lead us into joy to produce that. Now, it may not seem like that in the moment, but it is what God's doing. And I'll show you how we know this. Turn now over to Hebrews chapter 12. The letter of Hebrews is being written to a group of people who were going through some really bad things. They were being persecuted for their faith. They were being beaten. They were being imprisoned. And things were getting so bad that many of them were beginning to lose heart. And so the writer of Hebrews is going to encourage them. And here's how, beginning in verse 3. It says, For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. So the first thing that he does is point them to Jesus, reminding them that he can relate to every single thing that they are going through at the moment. And there's probably some of you in here this morning that if there's nothing else that you get from this message this morning, it is this, that you need to be reminded that Jesus can empathize with every hurt, every pain, every struggle that you endure in this life. Anyone ever had anybody betray you? It hurts, doesn't it? You ever had anybody say something bad about you that was not true at all? Doesn't that make you mad? That hurts too. You know who else has had that happen? Jesus has. And so everything that you encounter, Jesus is there going, I know. I've been there. I've had that same thing happen to me. I've been where you are. And I know how to get through it. So follow me. Any of you ever lose a loved one? The Bible says that when Jesus' friend Lazarus was laying dead in the grave, even though he knew he was about to raise him back to life, shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. And the literal translation is that he was sobbing over the loss of his friend could go on and on with things that Jesus endured that he can empathize with us. You know how hard it is to watch your kids going through something? How hard it is to watch them hurt and you just want to jump in there and defend them and beat somebody up for hurting your kid or whatever? You know how hard that is? So does God. He watched his son be beaten, tortured to death, and die a slow, agonizing death. He empathizes with everything that we go through. And so the writer of Hebrews is going, look to Jesus. You're not alone. You're actually in pretty good company there. Plus, didn't Jesus say if they persecuted him, they were going to persecute you as well? Yeah, he did. So he's not surprised at what you're going through in the least bit. He's not shaken by what's happening. So look to him. Let's read on. Verse 5. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. 
God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So you've got this great text here where God says, I've got this picture, this vision that I have in mind for you. Just like he said way back in Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, for good, not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. He says, I'm turning you into this glorious thing. And to do that, I've got to chisel away some things. I've got to sand some corners down. I I may even have to break a couple of things. But trust me, I am for you, not against you. And it is because I love you madly and I'm leading you into pure joy. So hold on to me. Don't run away from me while I do this. Cling to me. You know, when you're dealing with the sovereignty of God, there will always be some pretty tough questions that come with that. Like if God is all-powerful and all-knowing and nothing happens in this world without first being sifted through his hands, then what do you do with the hurt and the tragedy and the loss and the suffering? I mean, what do we do with those things if God is supposedly so good and loving, but those things still exist? Why doesn't he just stop some things? Why didn't he intervene in some situations? And in others, for some reason, he does. Well, there are two ways that we can respond to that. This is the next thing in your notes. People always have one of two responses to God. And this is true for everything. It's true for the offer of salvation. It's true for everything that God says in his word. And it's true for what we're talking about here. One way we can respond is with pride. That pride is what causes us to get mad at God, believing that if he would have done it a different way, if he would have done it our way, then things would have been a lot better. The Bible says that that's a heart of arrogant pride that thinks that it knows better than God. It thinks, well, I would never allow my child to go through something like that. Not if I really loved them. Really? You think your love is greater than God's? No, it's not. That's just your pride talking. The other way we can respond is by what God said back in Habakkuk 2.4, that the righteous will live by faith. That means we don't always have an answer for the why. But we trust that even in the darkest of days, God is good. He knows what he is doing. And he is working to restore all things to himself. And so the other response we can have is trust. We trust what God said When he first responded to Habakkuk in verse 5 of chapter 1, he said, I am doing something in your days 
that even if I told you, you wouldn't believe. God had this big picture that he was looking at, that Judah was involved in, that what he was going to do with the Chaldeans and the discipline that he was going to carry them through was going to be needed for the plan that he had that was eventually going to lead to the greatest event in all of history. He was looking to Jesus, and this was going to come as part of that whole plan. And so we trust that God is working things towards this big picture of our life that he can see, but we can't. He doesn't allow us to see all of it, just one little small part that's right in front of us, even though that one small part is usually pretty ugly. I think one of the reasons why he doesn't let us see the whole thing is because, just like he said there to Habakkuk, if you could see it, you wouldn't even believe it. That's how good it actually is is and so we trust him the righteous live by faith in the face of tragedy we walk by faith in the face of loss we live by faith in the face of devastation and betrayal and suffering we live by faith meaning we trust him let me show you how this is fleshed out literally Turn back over to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. At the beginning of 2 Corinthians 12, Paul is talking about this vision that he received where he was taken up into heaven and he saw some glorious things and he heard some things that he says he was not even permitted to talk about. Now, In that, he's saying that this happened to, quote, someone he knows. But we know he's talking about himself in the third person. Why he did that, I don't know. But um, we know that that's the case because of what he writes next, beginning in verse 7. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, talking about this vision he had, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself. Now, I want to stop right there. He hasn't exalted himself yet. He hasn't become conceited. But he knows that this vision was so great that he could easily think of himself as somebody really special for having received it. He could think, boy, I am somebody because God let me have this vision. And so whatever is about to happen is not because Paul has done anything wrong. He is not being punished for anything Let's read on. It says, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh. Now, why was it important to God to keep Paul from exalting himself, to keep him from being conceited? Because the Bible is clear that the proud know God from afar, but the humble he draws near to. And so God's going, Paul, because I want you close to me, I'm going to give you a thorn in the flesh. Now, people have spent way too much time trying to figure out exactly what this thorn was. Some people say that it was a sickness that Paul had. Some think it was an issue with a woman. Some say this proves that he was married. (laughs) I didn't say that. I didn't say that. Just saying, that's what some point to. (laughs) 
I don't believe that's what it was. Just for the record, I do not believe that that says that's how Paul was married. (laughs) We don't know exactly how it manifested itself, but we do know what it was because of the next line. A thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Paul had a demon. There was some demonic attack that Paul was experiencing. Now, pay attention to this in regards to the spiritual warfare that you and I are engaged in every day. The demonic realm here was going, we've got to shut down Paul. I mean, he is healing people. He is saving people. He is expanding God's kingdom like crazy. We have got to shut that guy down. So what are we going to do? One of them goes, I'll latch on to him. God, can I latch on to him? Yes, latch on to him. And so the demon latches on to Paul, but instead of shutting him down, it actually humbles Paul and increases his love for God and his passion for the gospel. So you see, even what is dark is working for what is light. God can use anything to carry out his purposes. And what Satan intended for evil, God intended for good. Now, just to be clear, Paul's not going, thank you for the demon. I mean, look at verse 8. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ might dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I'm telling you, church, if we could get this, it would change our whole outlook on life itself. You know, there are very few people that I know who are like, thank you for the weakness. Thank you for the struggle because it keeps me closer to God. No, most of us are, get me out from under this weakness. Get me out of the struggle. I just want out anyway, as fast as possible. Just get me out. But Paul's going, no, I'm sitting in it. Because when I'm sitting in it, I'm more dialed in to Jesus. If I get out from under it, I know that my mind is going to start being concerned with other things. And so I'd rather just be content with the pain and the suffering and be content with this thorn in my flesh because when I'm weak, then I am strong. Oh, I pray that we would be that desirous of God and the things of God. So what I want you to see and believe is that when struggle, struggles come and bad things happen to those who belong to God, that it is not his wrath being poured out on you in punishment because Jesus has already absorbed all that for you. If you are in Christ, you are never under the punitive hand of God. You are forever under his hand of mercy. As he chisels away, making you more and more like his son. And if you could see life through that lens, 
It sure makes going through some of those difficult times a whole lot easier to endure. It sure makes those times that seem so shaky to be a whole lot more stable when you know that you can trust God with it. If you can't see through that lens, then what you're going to do is try penance. If you think God is punishing you, you're automatically going to try to buy him off in order to get out of it. Buy him off with promises, with commitment, with religious activity, whatever, as penance for the sin you think that you're being punished for. I'm telling you right now, that is an exhausting way to live because no matter what you offer or try to buy, it will never be enough. God's grace is enough. Please do not trade his grace for acts of penance. You see, you have no righteousness, nothing good of your own own doing that you can offer to God. All you have is the righteousness that was given to you in Christ. The best thing you can do is just trust that God is good, that he knows what he is doing. That he has a vision for you that he is moving you toward with everything that he does because he loves you so much. Before I close, I want to share one more thing with you. You know, some of you may be thinking, well, that was Paul. I mean, come on. Paul was kind of special, right? Nobody was like Paul. Plus, that happened 2,000 years ago. Do you have anything like relevant today that we can see? There's a man I know, a friend of mine, an older man who I look up to tremendously. He was part of the Kerygma network of churches that we belong to, and he was pastoring a church out in Augusta, Georgia. For the last 10 years or so, he hasn't been pastoring, but he's been traveling all over the world just teaching other pastors how to disciple people. I call him a discipleship guru. His name is Wade Trimmer. And I haven't heard from Wade in a while, but I got an email from him two weeks ago. And I want to share with you just a couple parts of this email. He said this, over three months ago, I contracted a disease called Ramsey-Hunt syndrome, an illness so rare that only 10 out of every 1 million Americans get it, and most doctors have never heard of it. In addition, there's no medical treatment for it. The disease involves the herpes shingles virus attacking the seventh cranial nerve, leaving behind facial paralysis and severe nerve damage that results in debilitating 24-7 pain, primarily in the ear, along with vertigo, difficulty in swallowing, and hypersensitivity to light and sound, etc. In addition, I couldn't walk without the aid of a cane, couldn't drive, read, or use the computer until last week. Now listen, in 71 years of my life, I've never experienced such intense, stabbing, unrelenting pain, including those three times I had kidney stones. During this time of being shut up to God, I have cried out for miraculous healing, been anointing and prayed for by the elders, repented of every known sin, including some I hadn't committed just to cover all the bases, (laughs) especially unbelief and lack of faith. I've been prayed over by many and prayed for by thousands all over the world. I've had dear believers attempt to break curses spoken over me and willingly submitted to attempts to try and cast out any demons in, on, or around me. My wife and I have rebuked the devil and done spiritual warfare daily. 
I've taken all kinds of natural medicines, herbs, and vitamins. And yet so far, although I'm proving slowly and the pain has been reduced greatly, I'm still dealing with, with the ravages of this syndrome. And then he goes on to talk about wrestling with the question of why me and all these lies of Satan that comes at that and the things that he has learned in all of this. And I just want to read the very last thing he says. So far, here's what I have discovered during this time of adversity. God is good all the time. His grace is sufficient. His joy is available. And his heart will permit what he hates only in order to achieve what he loves. Did you hear that? He'll permit what he hates only to achieve what he loves most. And it's not what happens to me that really matters as much as what happens in me because of what has happened to me. I can react in bitterness or respond in grace and bless the Lord for not giving me what I really have merited and deserve, which is hell. For many years I have preached and taught that we are king's kids and training for reigning and that our loving, gracious, heavenly father is more concerned about preparing sons for glory and future rulership with him than he is in protecting and pampering saints from all the hurts and hardships of life. Now I'm getting to practice what I have preached. I love him more than ever and desire to pursue pursue him more passionately and proclaim him more pervasively than ever before. Like Job of old, I declare that though he slay me, yet I will trust him. It's not just for Paul. It's for Wade. It's for me. It's for you. It's for all of us who are in Christ. That we can know and we can trust God like that. In just a second, I'm going to close this in prayer, and then we're going to have a time of invitation, a time for ministry. I believe there's some of you in here that are going through something really difficult right now. God has been looking forward to this day for a while, knowing that he had something specifically to say to you. Some of you have been just struggling with the guilt and the shame of thinking you are being punished for something. Not understanding that it was God's love and that he wants you to see. And say to some of you, you may be at a place where you can honestly say, you know what? I don't have that desire for God to where I can say I'm going to be content with the pain and the hardship. But I want that. I want that kind of desire for God. But if I'm being honest, I don't have that. I would rather not have the suffering than to know Jesus like that. God appreciates honesty. You can pray that he gives you that desire because he's the one that puts those desires in our hearts. And maybe you're here today, you say, you know what? If I was to die today, I know that it would be punishment and judgment that I would receive because my whole life has been a life of pride, doing things my own way. I've rejected God. I've rejected Jesus today. I'm choosing his hand of mercy. I'm giving my life to Christ. We're going to worship the Lord, and when we do, it's going to be a time where you can come and you can get prayer for any of those things. 
I believe the Lord is here and he wants to do something. So let's let him do it. Be sensitive to that. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your goodness and your mercy. I thank you that there are things in this world that we don't understand. But yet we have somebody we can trust when we don't have the answers. So Lord, I pray for those that are struggling this morning. Lord, that you would lighten the load for them. God, that you would lift their spirits, that you would encourage them. Lord, for those who are not going through a difficulty right now, I pray that they would hold on to this and remember it for the day that that difficulty does come. God, I pray that there's anyone here who doesn't know you, that you would draw them to yourself right now. Save them for your glory. Holy Spirit, we just want you to come and do what you desire to do in each and every one of us. Lord, more than anything, teach us to trust you. Take us as a church, God, to new levels of trust in you. Because there is no other, no better place to be in a place of trust. God, we love you. Thank you for speaking, us to, speaking to us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen.